0: Lizzie starts running into Darcy on walks. She has this one path that she likes a lot. And so she tells Darcy, dude, I walk here a lot. She assumes that this means that he'll pick a different route, but he doesn't. But know what? Lizzie doesn't change her route either. So they just keep running into each other. One day she runs into Colonel Fitzwilliam instead of Darcy and the two fall into easy conversation like always. They discuss two very important things. One is that Fitzwilliam makes clear that he can't afford to marry Lizzie. He makes himself sound poor, to which Lizzie responds that he's only poor for the son of an earl. He laughs and agrees that it's true. He's gotten used to a certain lifestyle and will need a rich woman to keep him in that lifestyle, as he is a second son. The second important thing is that Lizzie learns that Darcy intentionally masterminded the separation between Bingley and Jane. Lizzie brings up the Bingley's and Fitzwilliam is like, oh yeah, Darcy's been a great friend to Bingley. He doesn't have all the details, but relays the story of how Darcy helped a friend, who Fitzwilliam assumes to be Bingley, avoid an imprudent marriage with an objectionable lady. We the reader and Lizzie herself immediately know that Fitzwilliam's assumption is right. Lizzie spirals about what could be so objectionable about her darling Jane and comes to the conclusion that the only reason Darcy would object is because Jane wasn't rich enough. Lizzie briefly wonders if it could be her family's propriety in general and decides, of course not. Darcy is a snob, and snobs will snob. Lizzie is gutted by this. She cannot believe that Darcy would make her sister so miserable simply because she was poor. And this account confirms that Bingley genuinely cared for Jane. Lizzie is so upset that she gets a horrible headache. So although Collins is aghast, Lizzie stays behind from Lady Catherine's with her head and heartache. In chapter 34, Lizzie, alone at Hunsford, goes and rereads Jane's letters. Poring over them, she realizes anew how miserable Jane is at being separated from Bingley. She thinks to herself that "at least Darcy is leaving the county soon as a consolation, when the doorbell rings, it is Mr. Darcy, and he has come with something to say. "'In vain I have struggled. It will not do. My feelings will not be repressed. You must allow me to tell you how ardently I admire and love you.'" Then he spends an indeterminate amount of time telling her why he shouldn't love her. What's wrong with her family? She isn't rich as he is. It's a degradation to him and his whole family. But also, he loves her lots. Here is Professor Susan Zlotnick on the Darcy proposal.
1: It's, you know, it's a novel of bad proposals, right? I mean, the, the Collins proposal is so bad, it's good, right? You know, let me tell you why my patron wants me to marry you, and then I'll tell make violent love to you. It's like, okay, it's not much better than Mr. Collins, right? And that's really important, right? And it takes place in the Collins drawing room, right? Which the setting alone should tell you this is a bad proposal because it's in this kind of marriage that neither of them want. I mean, it's in the house of the of the kind of marriage that neither of them want. But he's, he's just rude, right? The opening line is like, against my will, I love you. It's like, who the hell would, It's like, well, go to hell then, you know? <laughs> she's right.
0: That's certainly how Lizzie takes it. She tells him no, but that she's sure that the complaints he had about her will help him get over her faster. She had, for a moment, felt at least bad for her now, but his rudeness, Lizzie thinks, mitigates any scruples she has about the rejection. Here is Jenny Davidson on the proposal and Lizzie's reaction to it.
1: One way we might understand that scene is to say, as Darcy certainly understands it to be true of himself, he does Elizabeth justice. He gives her respect by being very full and open about where he's coming from. And if we are in a culture that values sincerity, then Darcy's proposal would be totally appropriate. Now in Austen's culture, there are arguments in favor of radical sincerity, but they are, have become very unpopular after the revelation in France. So as to say, there are plenty of people, English and French, in the 1790s saying, we have to tell everybody exactly what we think about them. And they are radicals like William Godwin. And they are not People that Austin is particularly sympathetic to, and the drift of history doesn't tend to support the sort of Robespierre committee of public safety hunt for sincerity in all things, right? So the culture has had a real backlash against that, and for good for good reason. So as to say, when you tell somebody they look pretty in their dress, and you don't really think that it's not necessarily like a damaging falsehood. It's a bit of lubrication and the kind of white lie that human community and sociability really depends on. So I think we can safely say that Austin is a believer, you know, in the forms of manners that have to do with kindness and have to do with uniting people in a group.
0: Lizzie doesn't officially come down one way or the other on social lubrication. She thinks that he's rude, But she says, honestly, I would have rejected you whether you were rude or not. She's never liked him and, in her lawyerly way, lays out her evidence of his unworthy character one, that he separated Jane and Bingley, and two, that he disinherited Wickham. Darcy, with livid civility, accepts the rejection and leaves. That's the sum of the conversation. And yet, it is important to note as best I can, without just reading it aloud to you, that the dialogue crackles like the beginning of a promising fire. They one-up each other a quarter of an inch at a time with smugness, snark, sarcasm, and hurt. They are eviscerating one another. I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And I'm Lauren Sandler. And this is Live from Pemberley from Hot and Bothered. Oh, Lauren, such an emotional two chapters. Woo, it is a lot.
2: But okay, so before we dig into the really juicy, yummy stuff, let's get into some brass tacks about what was required around a marriage proposal. So a father would have to give permission, right? It's about business, it's about money. And a father would have to give permission once a bride agreed. and then marriage articles would have to be drawn up that would define the distribution of wealth and property and what would happen in case said future wife would meet an early death, because then all of her property, of course, would go to the husband. So it was all about business. It was not about romance at all. And this was something that was even being tightened around this period. It was being legislated in new ways. So something we've talked about before, of course, is that you know the, the arc of gender equality does not always move in a straight arrow. It does not always bend towards justice. And of course, at this moment, when we have a growing middle class and a lot of anxiety about where money is going, there's this Clandestine Marriage Act, which was drafted in 1753, a mere 50 years before Austin really begins ruminating this book, determines that for any woman under the age of 21, which in this case still determines Lizzie's path, that not only would a father need to give consent to allow a marriage to be legal, but if his wife, if a person's mother disagreed, that wouldn't matter at all. His consent was all that mattered. And in case of his death, he could appoint a guardian to be the person who would rule in this situation. And so... I think it's remarkable that during this time, during the late 18th century and the early 19th century, you know, the courts are actually looking more approvingly on parents limiting marriage. This is a time when when that control is considered to be more important than ever, of course, because we're seeing the money move differently through both the rise of the middle class and because of what is happening around what Pride and Prejudice and other similar work does for us, which is transform a culture into one that doesn't just see marriage as a business arrangement, but but as a possible meaning of hearts and minds.
0: This is fascinating also, Lauren, in the context of the guardianship, which we talk about a little bit with Fitzwilliam in these chapters. And I know we'll talk about this more later, but I think it leads more to the disingenuousness of Wickham's love of Georgiana because he didn't get Darcy's permission to run away with Georgiana. I feel like readers at the time would have that context and... It's just putting so much in context because Collins got Mrs. Bennett's permission, not Mr. Bennett's permission to propose to Lizzie. And so just assumed that Mr. Bennett would grant the permission, right? Like, it really helps us as modern readers to understand all of the things that readers at the time would have just been alert to, Of to Susan's lotnik's point, how this is just a book of bad proposals, right? Of... Proposals out of order, without the right people's consent, with the, you know, assumptions that people are just going to say yes, kidnapping. I love that theory of this book, and of course, Lizzie flags this in her
2: conversation with Fitzwilliam, right? I mean, so much of this book is about what it means to have the power of choice. And of course, Therein lies Lizzie's real radicalism, is she knows that even though she may not be a dude and she may not have money, she can still hold on to that power of choice with all she's got. Because in the end, that is the thing that matters. Yeah. And when she says no to Collins, that seems scandalizing, but oh my God, she's saying no to Pemberley. She's saying no to all the money, <laughs> I love all that the you money, say Pemberley. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I mean, the thing, the other thing that's making me think of is just that. I've been really hard on Mr. Bennett, and I don't totally take back my point, but Lizzie is able to say no because she knows Mr. Bennett will back her up, that he will ask what she wants in all of this, and that's lovely. He's not going to be in a back room conspiring without any of his daughters, but especially not his Lizzie. Lauren, I know that one of the questions that you you and I have had over and over again is, about Austin's conservatism and whether or not she really is this, like, radical feminist. And I got to say, I find these chapters very feminist. This conversation with Lizzie and Fitzwilliam, I really read that conversation as Lizzie being like, "Uh, check your privilege, check your privilege, you're not poor, like, please stop saying that you're poor. And she did that with Darcy a couple of chapters ago when Darcy is like, what's 50 miles of good road? She's like, when you're rich. And these like big rejections. And, you know, and I think Jenny Davidson offers this great point that there's a little bit of a backlash, understandably, happening to the French Revolution where, you know, Austin and her contemporaries are like, Uh, Let's not just say everything that comes into our minds. (laughs) Let's socially lubricate a little bit. Let's not be total revolutionaries. And I'm wondering how you think Lizzie and Austin walk this line of calling people out and demanding a certain kind of truth and then, you know, yelling at Darcy for too much truth and how that aligns with politics. Oh, I think
2: it's such an interesting question. I love that you're thinking about this.
0: Because as you're talking, I'm thinking
2: something that I've really felt in this book, which is that Austin and Lizzie so deftly weave together issues of class and gender, right? They are not inseparable. You know, economics and feminism go hand in hand. And I think that they are something that Lizzie, with the the fervor of a college student, <laughs> is really speaking out in a way that, like, feels so important and so appeals to me. But, of course, like, what revolution is effective revolution, right? I mean, the French Revolution, I kind of genuflect at the altar of the French Revolution, but it was horrible. It was People dying, dying in the streets, dying of starvation, dying of of disease, and then dying of absolutely brutal bloodshed.
0: Mary Wollstonecraft describes it as ankle-deep blood. And part of that was because there weren't gutters at the time, (laughs) but like she was there and blood was ankle-deep.
2: And so I, I don't think that we can underestimate the brutality of what was happening in France. And, and the real fear that that could happen in England. And of course, we just have these binary swings in the human mind, right? Well, we don't want blood in the gutter. So therefore, we have to maintain class exactly the way that it is. I mean, right. the, the notion of modulating revolution is such a sort of tired and adult way of thinking about things. And not at all the way you know, a hot-headed, wonderful 20-year-old is going to think about the injustice that She sees in the world.
0: And I I love that diagnosis of Austin that you said of a modulated revolutionary, especially because, and it's just something that I know I keep saying, Austin has brothers on the front of the Napoleonic Wars, right? Which is the response to the French Revolution. I mean, I just think we think of her as in the countryside, but she she is skin in the game. She's DNA in the game on these things. And so her. Her form of conservatism makes sense to me, and I I love Lizzie's speeches here. I love that she's running around calling out these people of power, Lady Catherine, and and saying no to Collins and calling out Fitzwilliam and Darcy. Even and I love that she calls out Darcy. Fine, she doesn't like him, but she likes Fitzwilliam and is still like. Hey dude, let's you know take a step back. And yet
2: she has another element of power that not all women and girls do, which is she is beautiful and she's desired, right? And Her so Her fine eyes. Yeah, so she gets to say all of this in conversation with Fitzwilliam while she's thinking is his talk about marriage for me? You know, is he here sort of courting me? And then she gets to say this to Darcy after she's been proposed to. And so I think there's another element here where Charlotte probably couldn't get on this soapbox, no matter how dearly she, she may have believed these things, unless she wanted a life of poverty. That isn't something that Lizzie is dealing with. And I think that we also see this lasting in terms of who gets to speak that sort of truth to power, like, you know, how Gloria Steinem as a beautiful woman gets to have a bigger voice than other second wave feminists, how AOC, who I think is maybe the hottest woman on the planet, gets to be The voice in Congress and in our culture for these arguments. And I am grateful to both of them for their minds and their work, believe me. But it's also not lost on me that the Charlotte Lucases of the world don't get to have the same power behind those words. And I think, frankly, take bigger risks when they speak them.
0: Absolutely. But one of the things I think we love about Steinem and AOC and Lizzie is that they're exploiting their beauty politically rather than exploiting their beauty for personal gain. That is the best exploitation of beauty that we can ask for. I mean, the question, right, the question that we always like to ask is who is ridiculous in these chapters? And I think because we barely see Collins or Lady Catherine, I don't think anyone is ridiculous in these chapters. I'm more of the Jenny Davidson mindset that, you know, that Darcy's proposal while failed and bumbling in all sorts of ways, to Professor Zlatnik's point, is a radical kind of honesty where he's taking her mind seriously. And Fitzwilliam is trying to tell Lizzie, I like you a lot, but you're not rich enough. And that's a kind of honesty. And Lizzie is honestly calling people out. This seems to be a series of chapters of meeting of minds and people who are willing to acknowledge the world as it is, not as delicately and kindly and astutely as Mrs. Gardner, who I think still is pulling off the nuances best. But these are three people who are trying to speak truth to one another. I think there's
2: some ridiculousness in Darcy, I mean, it's not a silly ridiculousness, it's a pathetic ridiculousness, but (laughs) I think that there is a deep ridiculousness in his level of entitlement and expectation that he's been so entirely lacking in charm with Lizzie, and then he shows up and insults her the way that he does and then expects her to just say yes, like, that is a ridiculous way to propose to someone. Yes, it is. It's just not funny. No. Totally. And I think that this is the, the thing about ridiculousness is it isn't like simple comedy, right? There's something about it that feels painful and laden with other meaning. And, you know, I think that you could play this scene with him sort of blubbering and entitled in a way that could be really mocking this rich man's entitlement. But we know that it's coming from a place of pain and struggle. And so... It's hard to play it that way. And yet, I don't know, There, there is something absolutely absurd that he f- might feel like he can recognize and love this woman and think that she's going to say yes to him after what he has showed her, even without knowing what she knows about Jane or thinking what
0: she totally. thinks about Wickham. Like, you know, this ain't love. I totally take your point that I think the reason I find it less ridiculous and you, you absolutely said a version of this is that. What's underneath is not ridiculous, right? What's underneath is like such blinding infatuation of this woman (laughs) that he can't quite get there. Maybe it's not that what's under isn't ridiculous. It's that I value the thing that's under the behavior. He's just, I don't know, looking at the facts, he's like, I love you so much and I have so much to offer you. Right. Like I am the wealthiest man alive. And yet it's the word
2: ardently that does it. Right. You know, he could be a pauper. And if anyone said the word ardently to me, the way it is written in this chapter, like I would just be gone.
0: (laughs) Yeah you must allow that opening line is hot as hell, right? It's all downhill from there. But like, how do you not swoon at like, you must allow me to tell you how ardently, right? And the fact that he was at Lady Catherine's for dinner. And he is like, oh, no, she's not here and leaves and is like, are you well? Like, he cannot stand the idea that Lizzie is unwell. And comes and sees that she is and he's like fuck it right like I've got to tell you I don't know it's he's thinking out loud and he shouldn't be but it's wrapped up in passion it's rude as hell I just I have such bandwidth for forgiving him for this
2: and of course we know that it does a number on Lizzie like the moment after he leaves where she sits down and cries for a half an hour To me, it was one of those moments of like, oh, yes, people have always felt the exact same way that I do all the time. (laughs) Like, can you imagine having this experience and feeling like you've made your best case and you've said it with passion and precision and then he leaves and all that feeling just sort of like washes over you and you just sit and sob in your chair and then go hide in your room?
0: Can we talk, Lauren, about one of these I made my best point moments, Lizzie? Right, like she's so articulate. This is not a moment in which he leaves and she's like, ah, I wish I could have said this better. She says everything perfectly. And this is one of my favorites. This is, I might as well inquire with so evident a desire of offending and insulting me. You choose to tell me that you liked me against your will, against your reason, and even against your character. Was not this some excuse for incivility if I was uncivil? Hmm. (laughs) (laughs) What
2: I would give to open my mouth and have that sentence spontaneously come out of it. (laughs) I would just
0: tell people off every
2: day if I could do it that well.
0: Right. The man who cuts you off on the subway. Excuse me, sir. (laughs) (laughs) I might as
2: well inquire. And yet it's not just, you know, the perfect, perfect diction of this sentence, but what she's saying about who gets to determine what is civil and what isn't. I mean, this is in so many ways the definition of what we now call civility politics, the notion that it is white wealthy men in power who get to determine what is appropriate, what gets to be said, what gets to be said by whom. This is, of course, you know, so much of what determines whether protest is permissible, whether we speak up to white supremacy, whether things that so many people determine uncivil are uncivil to whom. And Lizzie is just saying this. Austin is saying this so many years before we have called it that.
0: The only thing, Lauren, is that she is wrong. He does not have a desire of offending and insulting her, right? Which is what she says. It was so evident a desire of offending and insulting me. It's totally evident of an ignorance of what might offend and insult her. It's certainly self-absorbed. He seems really to be thinking out loud. But he doesn't want to insult her. And this is her not assuming good intentions, which I think is one of the things about Pride and Prejudice, right, is that you don't want to assume good intentions in the other person. And so rather than seeing someone not caring about offending and insulting you, you actually see it as a desire to offend and insult you. Oh but I think
2: it's complicated because it is the person in power who gets to say that how they see something is just simple objective fact, right? you know, this is what people say about women and math. Like, I'm not trying to offend you. It's just obviously a fact. I mean, obviously, your family is poor and embarrassing. So obviously, I shouldn't love you, but I do. And then, of course, that's offensive. And I think that that that's part of civility politics is who gets to declare something as neutral, when in fact, it isn't neutral at all.
0: Well, I'm not I'm not saying that it's neutral. I'm just saying that he does not have the desire of offending her, right? That he thinks it's neutral, <laughs> right? Exactly. And I really take your point that it is the people with more privilege who get to not feel as though they're saying anything, that they're not trying to offend you. They think that they're just stating facts. And I'm not blaming Lizzie for this diagnosis of the situation, right? Like, at best, it is without a desire to take care of her and say things gently and thoughtfully, which is, I don't know, right? There's a form of neglect of thought that is abuse, right? Like, one of the ways that we think of abuse is neglect, and this is so neglectful of her feelings, it might as well be a desire. It's just that she is missing the forest for the trees a little bit. It is interpersonal enough that I wonder if there should be some, oh, you poor idiot, how do you not see that you are bungling this? And instead, she's totally political in this until, and then even until she's not, right? She makes all the political points and then she's like, screw you, you messed with Jane, so we're done. I mean, she's sitting there reading
2: the letters from Jane to whip herself up into more of a furious frenzy when he walks in in a fever (laughs) declaring (laughs) his love for her. I mean, it's like, you know, it, it could not be more of a recipe for this to go more wrong.
0: And yet there is one moment, Lauren, in this chapter that I'm like, fuck it all there. We understand why this scene has been blocked the way it has in a million adaptations, which is she insults him and he strides toward her. And that to me is, okay, this is the enemies to lovers moment. That someone calling your number, even when she has bad information and is infuriating you, rather than storming out, your desire is still to stride toward her. I was like, that's it, right? That is at the heart of the heat of this chapter for me is that even as they're yelling at each other, they have a desire to get closer and closer to one another. (sighs) You're so right. And it's really interesting
2: reading the proposal scene. What Austin chooses to give us in dialogue, and what she chooses to give us in (laughs) terms of, like you know, of the physicality of the scene. There, there are parts where it's like, yeah, and he said all the marriage things. (laughs) You know, he shows up. He says, you know, are you well? I, you know, you must allow me all my ardency, and then. Austin just says, and then he says all the marriage things, and then Lizzie breaks it down, and then we get back into the granularity of it. And, you know, I just, I love, I love that she knows what we're going to fill in because it feels boilerplate and what actually matters and feels unique and special in this scene. And she doesn't waste any time. The the economics of this chapter is so spot on.
0: She doesn't even list all the insulting things he says. Which is interesting because that leads us to believe that you know what insulting things he's going to say. Like, you know how ridiculous her parents are. You know she's poor. You know that, you know, she lives on a farm and that he's the richest man alive. So it doesn't even list all of the insults, which is just fascinating. Lauren, one of the things we're talking about this heat and we're talking about the quality of his proposal, but one of the things in this is that it is clear that part of what Darcy is saying, and I think it surprises him, and I think that's part of what he's saying, is, look, it doesn't matter what else is going on. I love you, which is a very romantic and like, you know, sentimental idea, right? Is that who cares where we both live? Who cares what our families are? I love you, And what's interesting is that to some extent, this again speaks to their compatibility. Lizzie is saying, yeah, and all that matters are our feelings. And I don't like you. It doesn't matter how rich you are. It doesn't matter how good of a play this is. You were mean to my sister. And even before that, right, she's like, you were mean to my sister. You were mean to Wickham. But then she says, and even before that, I just didn't like you. And so... Ironically, one of the things that they're compatible on is that they don't care about all the social addresses. They care about whether or not they like and respect one another, which is a very Austen idea, right? You know, we know, again, that Austen wrote this letter to her niece where she's like, do not marry someone who you don't like and respect. And so I think Austen thinks more than this is necessary for a good marriage. You can't just like each other. But I do think that Darcy and Lizzie are of one mind in this way. I think it's also really important that she hasn't seen Pemberley yet, though, right? That, that,
2: that <laughs> yeah. Austin, Austin lays down this argument, tells us about these two people, and then, and then she's going to test it in a different way. You know, this sort of wealth, I think to so many of us, just feels like some theoretical entity until you actually witness it firsthand. You know, who knows what rich people do with all their money and how it might feel to live that way? You know, the example of wealth at, at Rossings is certainly not anything that she would aspire to. She doesn't want to be the next Lady Catherine. She definitely doesn't want to be Anne. And so, Yeah, the idea of money is something that I think feels distant. And yet the idea of feeling is something that she's always carrying with her.
0: Lauren, we do have, we have this, as Susan Zlatnik called, like, bad proposal in these chapters. We have Darcy and Lizzie trapped in Hunsford, a horrible location for a proposal where Darcy insults her as he's proposing. But then we have a really sort of beautiful non-proposal in these chapters, Fitzwilliam and Lizzie meet on a walk. And it's this outdoors space where Lizzie is on her favorite walk, which is like a very romantic place. And they also have a form of a very honest conversation in which Fitzwilliam is essentially saying, I like you a lot, but I'm used to a certain lifestyle and you're not rich enough You know, it doesn't matter that I like you, I can't marry you. And Lizzie sort of teases him and is like, you privileged ass, but like, I get it. And they sort of part as friends in a lovely way. And I'm wondering what you make of Fitzwilliam and Darcy. They are similar in some ways in these proposals, right? Like, they're both very honest with Lizzie. One is honest through humor, and the other is not. But we're certainly supposed to think of the two of them in conversation with one another, they share a name, right? It's Fitzwilliam Darcy, and then it's Fitzwilliam's last name, and then they're co-parents to Georgiana. I'm wondering what you think of these two men sort of juxtaposed with one another.
2: Well, Colonel Fitzwilliam isn't in love, and that, to me, is everything, right? I mean, he and Lizzie have all of this lovely rapport, but he's not in love with her. He clearly adores her, but you know, if this is going to be the book that's going to make the argument for all time for romantic love, he he isn't it. So, so I mean, to me, that's the big difference, right? And I think that Fitzwilliam would have been a really great argument for companionate marriage. Like, they're really great friends. She's clearly not attracted to him. She's let us know that. And they just have, they have a wonderful rapport, but it's something that, that, that friendship feels made of and I think that that is where he has a leg up on Darcy is they know how to be friends like this is a world in which people can learn how to be friends with each other but there is no cultural understanding of what it means to be ardently in love whether you're ardently in love with the right person or the wrong person depending on what what your class tells you to want
0: in the world I don't know what do you think? I just find this conversation very charming, right? Like, she really teases him. She's like, you're plenty rich. And he's like, yeah, I guess. And like, is mean to him. And then he's like, fair enough, right? Like, there's just, you know, you were talking earlier about what Austin chooses to articulate and what she doesn't. And we get Lizzie insulting him. And then it's Fitzwilliam responds in the same manner, right? He's able to sort of mirror her which we know is one of the like signs of respect or whatever within a relationship and darcy is just so passionately in love that he can't i don't know the only thing i disagree about your otherwise to me brilliant point is that i think that they could be happy together they like each other it's flirty You know, he always wants to sit next to her at Rosings. We find out when when Darcy shows up, she gets a little flutter, thinking that maybe it's Fitzwilliam. We know that she's constantly annoyed that Darcy's on the same path as her. But when Fitzwilliam comes, she's like, oh, I was going to turn around anyway. Let's walk together. I think that there's a version of this that's that's a really lovely sort of upper middle class, perfectly comfortable marriage. The, The gross part is that he's like, well, you're not rich enough. I've gotten used to a certain lifestyle. I'm a member at White's and I really like nice handkerchiefs and (laughs) I'd have to sacrifice that for you and you're not worth it. Which makes him not worth it.
2: Totally. And yet he's still likable. How does she pull that off? Right? (laughs) We should be talking shit about Fitzwilliam right now in this (laughs) conversation. And yet we have nothing but affection for him.
0: Oh, my God. It's true. What a dick. (laughs) Never mind. I hate him. (laughs) <laughs> How is Lizzie not worth whatever I've made up about him? Good, good pipe tobacco. I don't know. Maybe, maybe he would really be poor if he. I. I don't know what a second son of an earl would be entitled to enough, but he says you're right. I've just gotten used to a certain lifestyle, and I need to like someone rich in order for that to happen.
2: And that's the big difference between him and Darcy, right? Is Darcy is saying, the problem with this is your family. Whereas Fitzwilliam is saying, the problem with this is I'm the son of an Earl. What can I tell you?
0: But he doesn't know her family. He would maybe think it was her family too. Well,
2: okay. So Fitzwilliam is saying, the problem with this is you're not rich. And I am. And uh, that's my trip but I adore you. Whereas Darcy is saying the problem with this is this is your family. I don't get to have the love of my life in an uncomplicated way because your family is poor and embarrassing. To be fair to Darcy, her family is poor and embarrassing. So embarrassing. Can you imagine having Mrs. Bennett as your mother-in-law? No, I really can't.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, Lauren... We are going to deal with the heartache of this proposal for a long time to come, including in these next chapters. And what's coming up is one of my favorite things in all of literature, which is Darcy's letter. I can't wait. So next episode, we are going to be reading chapters 35 and 36, Darcy's letter and Lizzie's response to it. And yeah, we're in the book. We're in the book now. So something we've been talking about a lot throughout this whole season is this question about Austin's politics. Was she liberal or was she conservative? What were her politics? So we thought we would get Claudia Johnson back on the phone to talk about it. You've heard her voice at the top of many episodes. She is the Murray Professor of English Literature at Princeton University and the writer and co-writer of many many books about Jane Austen, including Jane Austen's Cults and Cultures, 30 Great Myths About Jane Austen, and Jane Austen, Women, Politics, and the Novel. And I am so excited to get her back on the phone. Hi, Claudia. Hi, it's wonderful to talk to you again. People have heard you at the top of so many episodes, but now they'll actually get to hear you, not spliced. So very exciting.
3: Exciting for me too, to be (laughs) in one piece, so to speak.
0: (laughs) So we have been having this like confusing, not even debate, but like sorting through of how we should think about Austin's politics. And I'm wondering if you could give us just sort of a brief overview of how academics think about her politics and what sort of the conversation is around Austin's politics.
3: Okay, uh, the reason this is a vexed question is because our sense of of what is um, progressive and what's conservative, much less what is liberal and what is conservative, really have changed. You know, what looked progressive then, or what looked feminist then, is not the same as how it looks now. And I think we get into a lot of trouble when we project what we regard as, you know, conservative or progressive, when we project that onto Austin's time. So for a long time, the the authoritative book on this was by Marilyn Butler, and uh, we completely disagreed on, on this. She argued that Austin was conservative, but the conclusions that she drew, I feel, were kind of based more on the 60s and 70s when the book was written. Mm -hmm. And she tended to to line up rationality as conservative Mm -hmm. and sentimentality as progressive. But in fact, all of the conservative... Politicians of Austin's time were sentimentalists. Burke is a sentimentalist. The social order is based on feeling of attachment to people in a in authority. Do you know, it's it's not rational. Whereas people like Mary Wollstonecraft, mm-hmm. you know, were constantly appealing to reason. People like Tom Paine were constantly appealing to reason. So there's there was that big shift. And Mm -hmm. I feel that her reading, you know, said more about how she read her current situation than exclusively how she, you know, how she read the period of Jane Austen's time. So when the Vindication of the Rights of Women was first published, it was greeted calmly as a plea for women's education. And a plea to treat women, as Austen says, more than once, as rational creatures. Mm -hmm. And I feel that quite apart from the the controversies over the French Revolution in England, which are a little before Austen's adulthood, but it's what she was raised with, I feel that she does very much hew to that, that sense that women are independent, autonomous moral agents. And you mustn't treat them as delicate, elegant females, as as Collins would say, but Mm -hmm. as rational creatures who can make their own decisions. Mm -hmm. If you're properly educated, you know, you should be able to behave autonomously and you have the right to choose your own happiness. You know, but you only have that, you know, if you're educated and can make that decision responsibly. So it's not relativist. I mean, what makes Lydia happy will not make Elizabeth happy. And I don't think Austin has any trouble saying one person's happiness is better than another's. But that's snobbish, not political. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. But I think she, you know, I, I mean, I think she would make that moral judgment. Uh, I don't think she's a relativist, in other words. Mm
0: -hmm. I mean, there are definitely places where I feel Austin's kind of conservatism. I mean, she doesn't want to burn down anything, right? She's not not a revolutionary, which makes sense to me. If you've just seen the French Revolution, you're like, no thanks. Um, (laughs) And right like we don't see the downstairs. We don't see, you know, things that... That Mary Wollstonecraft is talking about to some extent, and certainly that like Elizabeth Gaskell is going to be talking about in 20 years.
3: You're right. I mean, I think class is, uh, is another thing. You know, Austin is much more, is the most comfortable when representing the gentry, but the higher gentry Come in for quite a scolding in Austen's. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I mean, and even Darcy comes, you know, has to, has to be corrected, mm-hmm. and has to learn, in part, how to honor other people's feelings. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean. Mm-hmm. So I mean, I think what Austen is saying there is that his privilege has has narrowed his vision, you know, and has made him feel that he doesn't have to try to please other people. Mm -hmm. And when he reforms, uh, you taught me how to to be pleasing and to think of other people as deserving. Pride and Prejudice is a novel about happiness, you know, happiness, not about duty
1: Hmm.
3: or obedience, but about happiness.
0: It's on every page of the novel. But this is the conservative part of Austin that actually having a little bit of poverty, a touch of poverty and a touch of fear, right? Like the gardeners, if you have to work, then you are going to be great or at least have a chance at it. But if you're just rich, I don't know if that's conservative or not, but she believes in work. She does believe in work. And and though
3: the point of life is to be happy provided you have a mature and ultimately religiously defined sense of what constitutes happiness. It's a it's a moral thing. To do that freely requires a certain amount of privilege. But pain has a role in this too, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because it's pain, it's mortification, it's humiliation that teaches Darcy how to be better. Do you know that if Austin is is about happiness, she's also about its opposite and the role pain has in in creating an, an awareness of what happiness is. I mean, the thing about Mr. Collins is that he cannot feel any pain. Yeah. And Darcy can feel pain.
0: Yeah, what she is questioning, you know, what we see in the conversation with Fitzwilliam is that Austin is actively questioning the idea that rich people are rich because they're smarter or that they have a better grasp on morality or that they have a better grasp on even politeness, anything. Yeah, 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 right. And so she's confusing all of those things intentionally in an interesting way. She's confusing it for us.
3: Right. So she questions those privileges up, but she doesn't question them down. Yes. You know, and and I think that's, that's the way she
0: is. And so respecting work and holding sort of wealthy people in contempt in 1800, would that have been seen, or 1813, 1820, would that have been seen as a progressive stance?
3: I'm not sure it would be seen as progressive. I mean... It would be seen as um, a social criticism, I guess. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. I don't it certainly wouldn't be seen as revolutionary.
0: Right. It's not eat the rich. No, it's la- laugh at the rich.
3: It's, it's laugh at the rich and, and hope they're listening.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: And they did like to listen. That does appear to be the, you know, the
0: lesson It's so funny because we can think of Austin as progressive, but not revolutionary, but right, like wanting to laugh at people rather than cut them at the knees. And, you know, if we believe Margaret Atwood's theory, right, like women are afraid of being murdered, men are afraid of being laughed at, right? Another way of thinking about that is (laughs) people with power are afraid of being laughed at, right? Like this is Austin's weapon, she is laughing at people. Yeah, it's it has a certain amount of irreverence
3: to it. And the laughter also creates a place for, for social criticism. Right. And ultimately, she wants from Northanger Abbey on to create a kind of critical mentality. Yeah. You know, be critical of everything. Judge everything. Yep. You know, watch and assess everything. What I'd like to say is Jane Austen makes you smart. And that, that two double sense of the term, the sort of older sense of she gives you a slap across the face and that sense that she also makes you more intelligent. And the two go together. Do you know that, yeah. you know, all of a sudden that shock of of awareness and of looking at something differently?
0: Well, Professor Johnson, thank you <laughs> for being here. As always, a delight. I love talking to you guys. Well, we'll find an excuse to talk to you again soon. You've been listening to Live from Pemberley. If you love the show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you are listening to us right now. We are a Not Sorry production. Our executive producer is Ariana Nettleman, and we are distributed by Acast. We would like to thank, as always, our Jane-level patrons. Viscount Elise Kennekarotnam of Unicornia, Baroness Gretchen Sneegas of Breakfast Carbsden, Knight Molly Reel of Worcestershire Sauce, the Countess of Kristen Hall, Dame Leah B. of Pickleshire, Dame Becky Boo of Tiaralandia, and Duchess Biddy Higgins of Bubble Bath. Thanks this week to Claudia Johnson, Jenny Davidson, and Susan Zlotnick for talking to us. Thanks also to Laura Glass, Margaret H. Wilson, A.J. Yoramas, Julia Argy, Nikki Zoltan, Hannah Rehack, Stephanie Paulsell, and all of our patrons.
2: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen,